Hello and welcome once again to episode 74 of Code Completion. We are a group of iOS developers and educators hoping to share what we love most about development, Apple technology, and completing your code. My name is Dimitri and I'll be your host once again for this episode and I'm joined today by my fellow completionist, Spencer. Hey there. And Fernando. Hello, hello. It's uh, been roughly a week and a half since we last recorded, uh, since we crushed, uh, crunched to get our reaction episode out. Uh, and in the meantime, we've had not only the reviews, but also the actual devices, uh, the Mac Studio, the Mac Studio, dis Apple Studio Display. Is it called Apple Studio? I don't know what it's called. Uh, the M1 Ultra. Uh, so lots of stuff that has uh, kind of come out since then. Uh, and uh, Fernando is no longer in a different country. He is in the same country for mystical reasons. Uh, so hence the, hence the difference. Um, so what are your thoughts on all the new stuff? Yeah, so I've, I've been following a few, a few reviews. Um, as you both know, I'm a fan of tiny, minuscule monitors. So going from a 24 inch to a 27 inch, may be a huge dramatic change. Um, but like actually being serious, I, I, I'm very happy with my 4Ks. Um, I, I run two 24-inch 4K monitors, but I've been eventually convinced by both of you and the reviews that a, a 5K is way more pixels. Um, so I, I, I've been coming, uh, I've been coming along uh, to the dark side of huge monitors and uh, trying to find alternatives to the studio display very difficult it's actually a really really um competitively priced display so consider me convinced at least from the display awesome yeah i i had the chance to to go out to an apple store uh not because i wanted to buy stuff at all i just wanted to look small i don't small believe tier. you um <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it really is funny how small the studio display looked to me compared to, say, the uh, Pro Display XDR, which was right next to it. It really, like, set a size glass. Um, yeah, that makes sense. And, yeah, even and like for recording, I always use uh, an iMac, and that is the same 27-inch display. And the iMac is bigger than the studio display because it has those giant bezels around it. Um, so, like, it looks small to, like, my, my eyes, which are not, I guess, used to it, despite me looking at two portrait ones on a daily basis. Uh, so I think you'll be probably fine after, like, an adjustment period of two hours, uh, and then your 4K one will look tiny, uh, by comparison, and you'll be like, oh, where do I put all these windows? Um, but I think we brought up, like, completely separately on Slack. That's not so much the display size that matters, it's the resolution and how yep. much like space that makes available. And I think what really gets me with 4K is if you run 4K at 2X, that's just like a 1080p monitor, and there is no room on that to put anything other than like make it as full screen as possible. And then once you start hitting 5K and 6K, you really have room to tile your windows in different ways, um, just because the UI is smaller as a result. Um, so I think that's going to ruin you more than anything. Uh, and I welcome the day when we can have just very high resolution displays of all sizes. And then we can, you can go back to having a smaller desk, desk footprint, but still have plenty of uh, space for your UI stuff. 
I will I will miss my twenty four inch. I, I think. But we'll see. We'll see. Uh, like I told you guys, if I do end up uh, ordering a few of the uh, studio displays, I'll give you my reviews in 2027 when they're back in stock. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you can what, run how many of them off your uh, M1 Max? Uh, I think, three of them, correct? Yeah, but I I wouldn't. I still like my 12-inch monitor. Is it 12-inch? Mm -hmm. I have a think uh oh god i forgot the uh the brand but it's a standing portable monitor that runs over USB-C, um and that is very useful for mm -hmm. like the terminal and smaller things so i'd run to studio displays and my smaller monitor i can't i can't change dimitri not 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 this quickly so you don't use the internal display which is better than all of those displays no, because there's no easy. That is way so to, ironic. <laughs> there's no easy way to set it up because I have like one, two monitors in front of me, the the other on the bottom right, and then it just feels weird with the whole keyboard there. It's wrong. Mm -hmm. Just rip it off. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'd have a portable Mac and my keyboard. I mean, I would do it in a pinch. <laughs> I don't know why you guys keep laughing at me. Uh, These are genius ideas. <laughs> mm -hmm. I well, when you said twelve-inch monitor, I just kind of like died a little bit inside. That's all. <laughs> I I'm pretty sure it's smaller than my iPad Pro, the thirteen-inch. The monitor. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah I I think you should try like running your your main like laptop monitor at the same time so that you have like four displays um, mostly so you can be ruined by HDR because it's going to make all your other displays look like yuck even even the studio displays uh, so this is my grand plan to convert you over to H an HDR experience um, Spencer your ultra wide does it support HDR it does yeah yeah it's uh, once you once you see it it's like mm. That that ruins you more than like fast display uh, refresh. Uh, mm. I I personally think. Yeah, it's it's interesting because you've got to make sure that the display itself can be bright enough. Because there are like a bunch of different like HDR standards, but if it doesn't get you know the max brightness doesn't get very high, then it just kind of all looks muted out. So um, you definitely got to have like a good like for example, I had I bought a. A 4K TV uh, secondhand a couple of years ago for really cheap, and it supported HDR, but it's like four years old, and it just doesn't get very bright, so it looks terrible. Uh, but I just bought a new TV uh, a couple months ago that the brightness gets up to like 1200 nits or something, and it's very you know night and day difference to the HDR ness, uh, just the way that it looks. So. Uh, just because a monitor says that it's HDR doesn't mean that it's good HDR, if that makes sense. Obviously, the Pro Display XDR is, it can do, what, like 1600 nits or something? 25? Yeah, the, there's an EXR image that I can load up onto it that just has, like, a lamp. Uh, and when you control the brightness of the display, the lamp gets brighter, just yeah. like an actual lamp would get brighter. Um, <laughs> and it act and the lamp is, like, showing on top of various different things in the scene. And the whole scene actually lights up where you can see more of it. It's a very right. bizarre experience that you're not really used to from just, like, changing the brightness on your monitor. Because you actually see more 
um, because you're like extending the range um, of of the display and what it's actually capable of. Uh, and ironically enough, you extend the range by decreasing the brightness. So as you decrease the brightness, your eyes adjust, uh, quote unquote, and you can see more of the scenery that's in the shadows. And then as you increase the brightness, everything gets um, uh, whited out because the image actually goes further than 1600 nits. Um, right. So you actually lose detail. It's a very bizarre experience, to be certain. Um, so what are your thoughts on uh, any of the reviews of the Mac Studio? Did that change your mind as far as wanting one or uh, still glad to be running uh, the M1 Max on your laptops? I think for me, I if I didn't have a like a work MacBook Pro with an M1 Max, I would just probably buy the M1 Studio for myself, just probably with an M1 Max. I'm not necessarily sure i especially for my own like personal stuff i don't think i need the m1 ultra i'm not a uh, like a window fiend like demetrius or anything so uh <laughs> 64 gigs would definitely suffice for me <laughs> um i just i don't know i love it it's like adorable i love the i've always loved mac minis but it's just like a cuter like thicker chunkier mac mini and so i just like want one to have like and put on a shelf uh but, you know, that's a $2,000 paperweight, so I might as well make it uh, <laughs> functional, I suppose. And it's um, a very heavy paperweight, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, it would be a good paperweight. Um, so, yeah, I, I would definitely get one if I didn't already have, like, a, a work MacBook that, you know, works fine for work. And then my, my MacBook Air works fine for everything that I do personally. So, um, it's like, it's very much a... I want it, but I don't need it type of thing. Um, so, yeah. Someday. I really want one, though. Like, I will I will get a Mac Studio sometime. I don't know if it's, like, 10 years when they're, you know, a couple hundred dollars or something. But we'll see. I'm checking the... Uh, do any of you know the pricing? What? How cheap could I get an M1 Max? An M1 $2, Max Mac Studio is two thousand. No, 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 no. An M1 Max, like whatever. Like uh, I know the uh, MacBook Pros <laughs> have. <laughs> what? Oh, I'm, like I, I mean, I'm getting to my point. Like, if I wanted just an M1 Max, right? Not, not necessarily just the, the studio. Aha! Yeah, just the chip. How cheap would I be able to get it? Like, $2, yeah, sorry, a, a computer, right? Is it two thousand dollars? Is that the base? Yeah, for yeah. both the MacBook Pro and the Mac Studio. Yeah, the MacBook Pro it comes with the M1 Pro, not the M1 Max. Right, but oh, you can sorry, upgrade. yeah, you're right, you're right. right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So upgrading so, so the MacBook more... Pro costs two thousand as a base, then yeah. Yeah, my bad, my bad. Right, that the makes Mac sense. Studio does at two thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So yeah, the point I was I was getting at is that in order to get an M1 Max, like the cheapest way is to buy a studio at two thousand mm-hmm. dollars, right? And, and then from there on, monitor kind of thing. Yeah, right. You have to bring your own monitor, and then to get the Ultra, it's four thousand, because um, the only yep. machine that runs the Ultra is the Studio. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's expensive, right? 
Is it not? I I yeah. kind of balled yeah. to the price when I saw it, like four thousand. It's obviously a pro machine, right? It's not a consumer machine, so it warrants higher price tag. But I don't know. Maybe I'm not that much of a pro because my max, like Spencer said, is way more than enough for what I do, which is like see GIF cats and enjoy life. Yeah, so pricing-wise, it, it's so just the CPU, because it is a bin GPU, uh, but just the CPU uh, outpaces the previous Mac Pro. So if you were to compare like prices, apples to oranges style, uh, then it is like way cheaper from the point of view of the Mac Pro base price of 5000 plus 7000 to get the 28-core uh, CPU. Um Plus, like the RAM upgrade that that requires, uh, so like that is already over ten thousand. So four thousand is probably a steal for people who do need that extra performance. Um, that said, the Mac Studio is still different than the Mac Pro in that you can't expand it to get a ton of RAM. Um, you can't like add extra GPUs and stuff like that. So it is a different beast. Uh, it's probably closer to the like trash can Mac. Pro uh, that does not have any internal expandability, uh, but does have external expandability. Right. Yeah, I was watching um, MKBHD's video on it, and he kind of talked about a couple of those things, but it was interesting to see uh, CPU performance-wise, it was beating out his 28-core Xeon, like Dimitri said. Um, And I believe it was almost always rendering... um, out videos kind of, you know specifically things that would use the um the um what are they called the um the transcoders yeah, hard, just, and the encoders yeah and the, the hardware transcoders the yeah uh to encode and decode uh specifically it was about as fast or i think there was one case where the m or the mac pro the intel mac pro did beat it but it was in like premiere and it wasn't using you know prores specifically so Either way, it's almost on par, either using first-party or third-party software uh, with that Mac Pro. So if you know, you're know you looking to go from that to um, a Mac Studio, then yeah, that makes sense. I think for us, where uh, none of us are you know, using um, anything like, um, I don't know, SceneKit or anything, we're not, we're not game developers where we're dealing with you know, intense 3D models or anything. Um, the only thing that, you know, takes up video memory here is, uh, a stupid amount of windows, uh, for Dimitri. So, uh, uh, other than Dimitri's kind of unique use case, I, I don't know. I, I think it would probably more, be more than enough for most people to use the M1 Max, but the M1 Ultra is cool to, it's, I guess what I'm trying to get at is it's cool that it's reaching, it's basically reached parity with the top of the line, like fifty thousand uh, dollar Mac Pro, RAM aside, and expandability. Yeah, it it is it is definitely a beast on its own, and Safari being a three D compositor of sorts uh, can like really eat up into into graphics performance, um, but also just like system uh, system RAM. Uh, so that yeah. that alongside with 
uh, running multiple Xcode projects and simulators, like all of those eat into those resources. So for developers, if you're just like working on one project at a time, like probably don't need it. If you are working on several projects at a time or run VMs, like having those extra cores to dedicate to individual machines, um, then that does give you quite a benefit. Um, so it's, it's something to consider if professionally it would benefit you. Uh, from uh, an, uh, a hobbyist point of view, like as Fernando said, $4,000 is expensive to spend on purely a hobby. Uh, so if, if that's like your primary use case, then if you have the, the cash to spare, sure. Um, and especially if you're going to be like messing around with 3D stuff, um, like Blender, then yeah, definitely. Uh, but uh, try to outpace the current floor first. And then once you outpace that, then consider getting something better. Um, and that's, that's basically the, the general strategy I go with. Like the only reason I'm considering one over my current M1 Max is because my current M1 Max after a week or two of use, not even after a day or two of use, uh, like it just comes to a grinding halt with some tasks <laughs> and it's just like pathetic. Um, so yeah, like I don't, I don't want to be like held back by my computer, especially when so much of my time is better used being creative in uh, an intellectual point of view. Like I need to just keep that that uh, motivation going as long as I can if I want to get a lot of work done. And every time Safari just suddenly decides I'm going to take five seconds to open a window, that just kills that. Um, if I have to now take an hour to go clean everything up, that just kills it entirely. Mm -hmm. uh, so... Like, from those point of views, yes, like, I may have more windows open than most, but I have a lot of windows open because, like, my brain is itself scattered amongst many things, uh, and I don't want to close it because once I close it, then it's out of there. Uh, my brain does not have the capacity to remember very many things uh, unless it's shown in front of me, so that's how I cope with that. Um, and, yeah, I need more resources to just be able to keep up with that, that way of working. Um, and I look forward to in many, many weeks, uh, getting my, <laughs> my order of a M1, uh, ultra Mac studio. Uh, I tried going to the Apple store, as I said, they did not have any of the studios in stock. Uh, they did have the base model studio. Um, no stores in the area had the ultra in stock. Um, so I guess I'll try every few weeks to see if maybe, uh, they start getting those, um, uh, extreme like configurations like they did for the MacBook Pros when those were resource constrained uh, and maybe I'll get one a bit earlier but uh, I don't have high hopes <laughs> to say the least I guess a final thing I wanted to bring up was uh, Max Tech did a teardown of the M1 Ultra uh, and everything is like really packed mm. tight inside of there um, so if you are interested in how they are using the available space, like, yes, uh, more than half of it is like a giant fan. Um, but, uh, the actual chip of like the, the system on chip is massive. It is like this big, uh, a few inches, uh, square. Um, and although yes, it contains all the RAM and stuff, like they did like make a nice, like, this is the chip, 
uh, kind of area rather than like this is the half chip and then the RAM is like next to it that they did for the M1. Um, so it really looks like kind of kind of uh, uh, hefty as far as like what is going on in there. So I can only imagine how much crazier that's going to be when uh, the extreme variants of these chips come out for the Mac Pros. Um, but yeah, exciting times to be to be a nerd, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing with that, with the teardown is I, I can't remember where I saw this. I watched a bunch of Mac studio stuff, stuff last day or two, whenever it came out. Um, there's also like an SSD slot for more expandability mm -hmm. in, in the device itself. So it's not actually soldered onto uh, the SOC as well, or at least maybe there is storage, but it's also expandable. So that's, I thought that was really interesting and kind of a it, modular. Reversal. From... It's dare I say, you beat me to it. That's their one <laughs> modular piece. Oh yeah. man! Um, there's, but there's they disabled pins. it in software. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm guessing that's primarily there when you get the the eight terabyte or four terabyte mm. options, um, just to split the chips between two controllers, kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it's it's nice that that is not soldered on. Uh, it's mm -hmm. nice that there's actual, an actual pin layout that OWC can eventually copy and Apple can eventually enable, um, like they did for the Mac Pro. Like, originally, the Mac Pro was not expandable either uh, from the SSD point of view, um, but they did flip it on in a future firmware update. So I can only imagine that they'll do the same for the Mac Studio eventually. Yeah. Um, not that it is like very easy for the user to get into, but um, they, get, they end up winning some extra brownie points for flipping it on after the fact, so they, they probably end up doing that for strategic reasons more than anything. Um, like, mostly they didn't have time to, to do it yet. <laughs> yeah, that's probably fair. Okay, so last week, uh, not only did we get all these uh, fantastic reviews of uh, the Mac Studio and stuff, uh, but we also got Xcode 13.3, and with that comes Swift 5.6. Uh, so what better time to check out what's new? Um, so, uh, do any of you have like a new favorite feature that we should start off with? Actually, the the first two that we have on our list are the unavailability conditions and type type placeholders, which I think are both really cool. Um, I remember when I was working on um, like the M1 uh, version of our app, there were some features that we would either have to disable. Um, or, um, you know, for example, there, there was one that I was working on with keyboard commands that only existed in, um, iOS 15 and I can't even remember which version of macOS, um, to ignore or not ignore the, um, the system commands that were kind of, um, I don't know. Anyway, uh, but you'd have to do like if available iOS 15 or whatever, but the unavailability just kind of flips that. So you could say if you know, iOS 15 isn't available, then it covers anything below that, which I thought is really nice. And I, at the time, I wish that existed. So that's super cool. Um, just kind of a nice thing if you have to do any um, of that logic to conditionally kind of just not even compile that code or whatever. So. Yeah, it prevents it prevents the case where you have that if statement uh, that's just empty. Mm -hmm. When you want to have like exactly. a workaround where you have the else that has all the work, um, so this is nice. One one thing to point out is you don't have uh, that um, asterisk uh, for the unavailability, which is like the catch-all for all platforms. 
Um, that is because you can't do that in, in the reverse logic. So uh, if you still need to catch all, catch all for all platforms, use your, the traditional availability check. Also to note is it's not available in Objective-C, which is slightly ironic since the original availability came to Swift and Objective-C at the same time. Uh, so yeah, this is a Swift-only change. Goodbye, Objective-C. You yeah. slowly but surely you will be missed. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, type placeholders too were when I was reading about them, I was like, I don't really get this because it, what it allows you to do is just put an underscore um, where there would be a type, and it will do perform type inference. And um, Paul Hudson on hacking with Swift has a good mm -hmm. example where it's like. He has three lines of code where it's like just an integer. It's like, you know, let int uh, colon int uh, equals six, let int equals six, and then let int colon underscore equals six. And you're like, why is this the thing? We already have type inference. But then he goes into um, more complex types, like, for example, a dictionary where maybe um, you've got, like, you only want it to infer part of the type so maybe the keys you could say you know you, you say let my dictionary colon uh in in brackets underscore the key but then the value you explicitly um kind of define yourself or sorry the value of the of the dictionary you define yourself so that it doesn't have to infer the type or i think there was one where it was even going into like so that it didn't have to um infer like a generic type in a function, which I thought was like, oh, okay, this is really cool. As soon as you start making generics easier to deal with that, uh, that's like a super big thing for me. So it, it was a very quick shift from like, this seems really weird to, oh, okay, this would be really awesome. So you don't have to write out this uh, super long generic type, potentially. Yeah, I started using them for the generics, like even in the beta period, because um, I think I shared with both of you, I had some very generic heavy code, um, and I was unhappy with, uh, how things were like not simplifying down to nicer looking code. Uh, so I had underscores all over the place for that stuff. Um, and I've since, I've since simplified it quite a bit, but, uh, yeah, for generics, this is, this is primarily what this is used for. Um, because oftentimes part of the generic, like it can't, it needs handholding, but the other parts it's fine with. Um, but you need to just like spell out the whole thing. So if you have five generics, that gets crazy quickly. Um, so yeah, very, very happy this is, this has come in. Um, again, like, like you said, Spencer, it looks kind of useless for the case with like an int, uh, but you'd never use it for that case. So, right. um, that's, that's where, uh, the value comes in. What about you, uh, Fernando? What, what features are you looking forward to? Uh, before we get to the features, I just want to add to that last point, um, which is that, I think it's um, it's very complicated to understand some features, uh, and we've talked about this uh, several times, I believe, um, when when it comes to like toy projects or toy examples, right? Like Spencer was saying, like, oh, okay, I get like I I sort of like get the concept of placeholder types, uh, or rather type placeholders, um, but why, right? I see the example, mm -hmm. I see that it compiles and it's standard, but why would I ever do that? And it isn't until you get into the weeds of things that that it starts becoming truly useful. Um, like Dimitri's code. So it's it's an interesting an interesting and a difficult proposition for the uh, Swift uh, team. Like 
I'd really, uh, I'd really like if if they could offer, um, maybe it's outside of the purview, but but offer like a little bit of a more complicated example for each um, uh, pull request for each uh, new feature. It's open source, mm-hmm. so people can come and tell me, "Hey, well, do it yourself," and I think that's totally fair. Uh, <laughs> but but it, I think I think it's complicated because the more we advance the language, the more complicated it's naturally going to become, right? Even even when we try yeah. and refactor and try to simplify things, like with type placeholders, it's still going to be more complicated. Like I, I can already imagine someone new coming in and having a bunch of like underscores where the type would be. And they'd be like, why is this happening? And it may not be super complicated, but it's yet another thing that you have to learn to master the language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. it very much is like a, a minor landmine where if, yeah. if you need to modify that code, like reading the code is fine. Um, and I think Swift does a good job at like hiding the parts that just make it so esoteric that you would never want like and never be able to understand code that you're unfamiliar with um whereas a lot of this really helps you just kind of understand what the code is doing from a high level um but as soon as you need to like modify like oh i want to use a different generic here um that just like matches to an existential protocol or whatnot um you really have to understand what's going on to be able to make that that surgery happen um but most of the time you have someone on your team that wrote that code so you can like ask them and get some help uh unless you you unfortunately inherited a code base that came from who knows where and you just need to fix it and that that's when it gets very very complicated uh so like you said fernando i think it would be very nice if the pitches are less academic in nature and really go ahead and like outline it from here's a here's a simplistic very mathematical proof kind of thing but then here's an actual use case that you'll run into this and how to go about it um because at the end of the day those pitches end up being like the only documentation for these features um and the the swift guide does a good job at like introducing you to everything that's the swift language can do but it doesn't go over like how you can combine these things to make something more complex um and that that is where the shortcomings really show uh once you have a lot of these extreme like very fringe feature sets that yes you don't need to be exposed to them to know how to read the code and get through what something is doing uh but you do end up being exposed to them like uh, unintentionally and you don't really know what to do if you don't know who to ask um to kind of answer those questions i agree 100 percent. i've come i've come i've sort of come to terms with it um whereas objective c was um, obviously my first language, but it was also simpler in general. Like the complex parts of Objective-C, like going down to the runtime, uh, method swizzling, I think were immediately visible in a sense. And like when you got got to a piece of code um, that was really complex and doing things that you shouldn't do, even even though you were like uh, aware and probably doing it uh, right, uh, it's immediately visible that hey something funky is going on here. Whereas Don't and you've heard, me, <laughs> you've heard me say this again and again, and we had a tweet uh, 
chat, uh, Dimitri, and I think you were there too, Spencer, about uh, about SwiftUI, right? Where some view is like a mask, and it's like, don't worry about it. Like, it's just some view, and then underneath, it's like this huge generic uh, mask. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's it's interesting how uh, how we've progressed towards that. Whereas my personal preference would be not to hide that complexity, um, because in the end, it's, it it all comes down to what Dimitri said, where it's like, sure, it's very easy to read some view, but when you want to try and modify something uh, that's complex underneath, it really will blow up on your face. Uh, unless you know exactly what you need to do. Maybe it's just me, again, in my uh, weekly Fernando Rankin of my lawn, but it keeps feeling that way the more we read about like new Swift features. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so Objective-C definitely also had like 20 years up to uh, the point when we all started using it to like develop a nice a nice volume of academic knowledge around it. Um, that you can go ahead and look up anything and everything. Uh, so, yeah, Swift Swift is maybe evolving way faster than a lot of people can keep up with. But at a certain point, it's just trying to patch in the features that it needed to have from the beginning. Um, like a lot of things, like the generic improvements that are happening to make it more generic. Um, like those features that limit SwiftUI to 10 views per per like group um that will change for the better once those things do land um and they will simplify a lot of things as a result so a lot of complicated pieces do get simplified over time as we kind of settle into this ideal language it's just there's a lot of churn um and a lot of complication that comes with it and like needing to help everyone move to uh an async world for instance that's going to come with a lot of warnings because we've all been doing it wrong like there's no way around it um so we need yep. a, we need we need some hand holding to get there um and we're all gonna co- go kicking and screaming because it's gonna be a painful process but when swift 8 comes around it's gonna be a very simplified process um so we, we need to take those steps um to to better everything unfortunately any case uh so what uh new feature are you looking forward to for now yeah, so that, that brings us to the features. Um, I I haven't read most of these, but the few that I've read are really interesting. I really liked an availability condition. Um, type placeholders, I went through the same process as Spencer did, where it's like, I don't get it. And then uh, Paul, uh, please don't ever leave us, Hudson, just explained the <laughs> dictionary. And I was like, oh, okay, that like I get it. Um, I wish there were a more complex project, but I get it. I get it. Um, and then I went into uh, existential any. And I think that was a really, uh, a really interesting and complex one. Um, it it exemplifies the fact that, uh, like you said, Dimitri, like a lot of the things that we're working on are incomplete, just due to the lack of time. Right? There's a limited amount of time for everyone that can uh, actually contribute to uh, to Swift. Uh, but I can see the language progressing and. I think in the end that's that's a total positive I'd say. It it removes my existential questions. <laughs> that's good. Thank you. Yeah, so so existential any is is very interesting because it's one of those examples of 
we've all been doing it wrong, um, where we've maybe been overusing protocols in situations where they are not at all the right tool for the job. Um, because if you think about it, a protocol can be anything. It can be a struct, it can be a class. And at runtime, we have no clue what it is going to end up being. So if you have an array of these things, you can't make an array of tightly packed structs. Uh, you can't necessarily make an array of tightly packed pointers either. Um, you have no idea what those individual things are. So you need to pack in extra metadata to describe what the thing that you're adding in is. Um, and there's no indication that this extra complexity is sneaking its way in. Um, so that's what that any keyword actually means. It says, hey, uh, you are adding some extra complexity here uh, and you need to acknowledge it just by putting this any. Um, and in Swift 6, they say this is going to be an error uh, if you don't have this because you are breaking, um, you are essentially breaking the contract that you have with whoever's going to be using your, your code that you write um, by not specifying this. Uh, so any really... Uh, makes it more concrete. Just like you can't use a var if you never modify the variable, like Xcode will go ahead and say like, hey, you never modified this, you probably don't want to be using a var. Um, and that helps your code from like breaking in unintentional ways. Um, but it really just indicates to everyone that's using the code, even if it's just you, that that is now a constant, it's not changing. Same with throws, same with all these keywords. Uh, that might seem superfluous, um, but they they help communicate intent, and I think that is important. So this is just one additional thing. Um, this yeah. is this is one of those places where you can see the best of Swift, where it will force you to be clear, even if the if the addition doesn't do anything for the language itself. I don't know if I'm making like if I'm explaining mm -hmm. myself right. Uh, like the try keyword. Yeah. Like, it'll make you see that there's something here that's worthy of attention. Uh, and it goes back to your point, Dimitri, of like, I saw a few comments that were like, but this is a breaking change. I don't want to go over all of my code and then uh, have to add any or deal with warnings or deal with errors. Uh, so there is some kicking and screaming. But in the end, I think this is a positive change, and I think the team does too. So, yeah, I, I, I'm all for it. Oh, uh, and one more thing. The more I, I read, like, the comments and, and the uh, uh, the actual introduction of the existential any, the more I realized that one of the first WWDC talks that took the community by storm was protocol-oriented programming. And it's one of those stocks that I think was had an outsized measure to its importance. Like people saw, oh, a new paradigm. Oh, this is great. Let's uh, do all in protocols. And some people really took it to heart. Like I personally was skeptical. Like I sort of like get it, but is this like truly the way forward? But there were some people who drank the Kool-Aid, right? They just went all in. And I kept seeing it on my Twitter feed for years. And I never actually get it. And now that we have the existential any, I'm like, maybe like that talk, I don't know why it, it was so famous, but it really had an outsized impact on the community when I don't think it should have. Just throwing it out there. The true way forward is enums. The true way <laughs> yes, forward is yes. enums. You know, <laughs> yes, the enums are, enums are amazing. <laughs> yes. I keep telling, I had a, um, 
a mentor meeting uh, last week with um, one of my mentees, and and we were going over enums in like an actual real project, and he was like flabbergasted at how cool and powerful enums can be. Uh, I just yeah. If there is one thing that that I think sums up the best of Swift, it's enums for sure, a hundred percent. Um, so a, another thing that I'm, I'm definitely kind of looking forward to, um, especially as I've been writing very custom codable, uh, structs, um, with, uh, servers that I do not control and that are not written in Swift, um, are, uh, the ability to now have non-string and int dictionaries be just codable. Um, and this is made through a new, uh, this is made possible through a new protocol called Keyed Container, uh, which basically allows any type to uh, downcast itself to a string or an int for codable uh, reasons. So basically, if you have an enum, for instance, of like four different possibilities, even if that enum's um, type is a string uh, under the hood, that dictionary that had that enum as keys would just turn into a flat array of like key value, key value, key value. And that wouldn't be appropriate for a lot of cases uh, when you need to encode them. Uh, so uh, being able to use enums now as as uh, keys and dictionaries when you want to code or decode them uh, is uh, once again an example of the true way forward are enums. <laughs> uh, and I'm definitely looking forward to that. Uh, so we still have a, a few uh, new features, but they're getting more and more esoteric. Uh, so any, yep. any you want to tackle before we get to the very esoteric ones? I was going to joke that uh, like uh, temporary uninitialized buffers, like, oh, that was a lifesaver because I have a lot of un uninitialized buffers when I do coding. So let's jump into that one since you brought it up. <laughs> um, I didn't say it in the first place. It's so, not a joke. <laughs> so uh, this actually leads to something that's a, a bit more interesting. So if you have uh, an array, that is forcibly put on the heap. So it is out of your program's like main... Uh, cached memory and you have to perform a fetch to get it from a different part of memory. Now on our new uh, M1 Pros and Maxes and Ultras that is a fast operation because I have a gigantic memory bus. Um, but on in most situations that is a slow operation especially if then you need to do another hop to each individual object that just like tanks performance and uh, that's why C++ for the longest time was the flavor the language uh, that was preferred amongst like game developers where you need to have a lot of data objects, you need to do a lot of checking uh, back and forth. Um, and that was all made possible because you have an array full of tightly packed structs that you can then go ahead and do those operations on. So we can do that in Swift now, uh, but there's one piece that is missing that was missing from Swift and that was the ability to have a stack allocated um, buffer that can go ahead and do this as well. Um, and uh, that was something that you just couldn't do in Swift. Um, now, this makes this possible because uh, you can now allocate a buffer um, that will be temporary, meaning it's not going to live longer than the current scope. Uh, so it doesn't need to go on the heap. It can stay on the stack, um, and it just needs to be small enough where 
it won't overflow your stack. Um, so this buffer will, if you ask for one that's too large, it'll put it on the heap anyways. But uh, in most smaller cases, it can go ahead and put it directly on the stack. You'll have what is essentially a, um, a uh, constant size like C array uh, for all intents and purposes that you can then just go ahead and use. Um, and then if you call any functions, those get added and stuff like that. So uh, this is like a, a good win for performance under the hood. It's something that most people will never use, but library authors will likely make use in like very specific instances to speed up things dramatically that couldn't have been written Swift to begin with. So uh, things like cryptography and stuff like that, that needed like very very fine-grained control over things that just need to happen as fast as possible. Now we can go ahead and do those in Swift, and that's that's kind of exciting to me. Nice. Cryptography. I also indulge myself in cryptography on occasion. <laughs> I, too, cryptography. How about you? <laughs> <laughs> um, there was one on here that I wasn't quite uh, sure... I. I really only looked these up last night, so a lot of these up last night. Um, so the um, <clears throat> I don't know if they're related, but the the command plugins and then the extensible build tools were ones that I wasn't quite sure. I know it has to do with Swift Package Manager, uh, but I wasn't quite sure what uh, it was do it talking about. Uh, just as far as actually, really either of those go, to be honest. Yeah. So it, it's it's. Bringing Swift Package Manager more up to par to the Xcode project format. So you know how in Xcode you can make a custom build phase that will run a shell script mm. or generate uh, code based off of like um, templates uh, mm. that you have, uh, much like Core Data does. Like it will go ahead and generate um, some code for you that you can then go ahead and use. And Xcode does that one automatically. Um, but Swift Package Manager is like a very... Uh, lightweight version of Xcode. It doesn't want to do a lot of stuff automatically without you really knowing about it. Um, so that's what uh, command plugins and extensible build tools really adds to it. Um, it lets you set up in code, because remember the Swift package manifest is uh, an actual Swift file. You right. can go ahead and set up any sort of uh, chain reaction that you need to get your builds running from start to finish. Um, and the goal of Swift Package Manager is not to include extra dependencies that are that Swift Package Manager can't itself take care of. So that way you don't end up in a situation where someone tries to clone your package and then it just doesn't work because you don't have X, Y, or Z installed. Uh, so this will allow those particular plugins to be defined as Swift Packages that can then go and be brought in uh, via the dependency system. So that way you can go ahead and continue the build process without being stopped along the way, if that makes any sense. The Swift Docs C updates, uh, I haven't read too much of them, uh, but they're, they've been constantly updating uh, the, the Doc C for a while. And I really, really like that. I, I think having that come like to the forefront along with the other um, new features, I think that's really cool because I'm, I'm a huge proponent of documentation. And so, uh, seeing it come forward is great. Yeah, likewise. Um, this specifically added, uh, I think, static site possibilities. So you can just go ahead and run it as a self-contained thing. You don't need to run it in an Apache instance with lots of .ht accesses. 
Uh, for those who don't know, that's how you tell Apache like what is okay to access or not. Um, and it's a hidden file that's hard to find sometimes. It's hidden. Um, so that that is a thing that uh, came. And also going directly in with the command plugins, uh, Doxy now has a plugin to generate documentation as a part of the build process. Um, so that that is uh, a super neat like collaboration of all these tools kind of working together um, to make it possible to do really cool stuff. Indeed. So I guess to finish off uh, the remaining um, uh, improvements, we have uh, incremental migration to concurrency checking. So if you've been using async await uh, and you were using Xcode 13 uh, you were greeted with a barrage of warnings and failures that you may or may not have known what to do with. Um, no. I think Xcode 13 and so 5.6 actually bring quite a bit of new improvements to uh, the warning system, which are like very useful. For instance, if you use self inside of a static property, self is not relating to the class or the type itself, but the method that the static property represents. And that was something that many people didn't realize until you tried to start sending actions and those actions would never send and stuff like that. Um, so now Xcode will warn you, hey, this self is not what you think it is. Um, go ahead and uh, cast it or use something else because self is not the tool for that. Um, so that uh, that is one of the warnings. But uh, with the concurrency, you can't use any um, main uh, actor uh, stuff inside of static properties. Um, that will all fail because those are all actually concurrent. Um, so yeah, that's that's an improvement. Uh, they added a bunch of sendable conformance to all of Apple's UI kit frameworks. Um, so that way you can go ahead and not trip over uh, using async await in those contexts. Uh, but then they also removed it from unsafe pointer types because no guarantees can be made. Um, so it was added a little bit prematurely in those contexts. So now your code will have extra warnings uh, if you use a lot of C stuff. Um, and it will have less warnings if you use all the UI kit stuff and it'll have uh, extra warnings again uh, if you use the async await stuff incorrectly. Um, though I think a lot of those warnings got turned off at the last minute. I'm not too sure. Uh, so yeah, that's an improvement there. Uh, and then the final, final thing uh, was uh, pointer arguments to C functions uh, have uh, some better diagnostics that you can go ahead and take if uh, you are using them incorrectly. Um, it will go ahead and lead you the right way. Uh, though, again, this is like the fringe of the fringest uh, additions that help a very specific subset, but it's a very important subset. It's the subset that allows us to use Swift without making use of any of these features, right? They are the library authors that are uh, making everything fast for us, so that way we can use the the slow, stupid way of doing stuff um, and just make our app without uh, getting held back by uh, the creative forces that be. Um, and yeah, that makes up all the new improvements to Swift 5.6. Good stuff. Feature some stuff, obviously, that, like you said, uh, I'll never touch, but also some stuff that are really cool uh, that definitely uh, I could have used months ago and i think i will you know be using uh in in the coming months as well so good stuff and it's cool to um i think i don't know for me i always kind of had my eye on 
Swift Five, right? That was like the um, the the goal for so long was like get ABI stability, get all of these awesome you know general language features, and I never really thought personally past you know what would be past Swift Five So it's really cool to now kind of. Uh, see where we're going with you know async uh, away and just really a lot of these things to kind of make the things that we've had uh, like codable more uh, easy to work with so really good stuff overall and it's it's exciting to see that even now you know uh, years uh, over half a decade later that the community is still putting in all of these requests and um while I'm not ever, I'm, I'm never thinking about, oh, yes, this is the thing that Swift needs. Uh, it's always cool to see that there are people that are doing that and uh, actively kind of contributing to try to make the language better and easier to use. So, Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm left wondering, like, when we'll actually get Swift 6, because a lot of the additions to Swift 5.6 are just prepping developers for Swift mm-hmm. 6, but... The whole goal is to not rush it, right? So I don't think we're going to get Swift six for another year or two, even um, because the whole again, once again, the goal is to not rush everyone through the process of like here is a code base that's just not going to compile anymore. We want to give you warnings to kind of tweak things as as you go, so everyone can be dragged along, kicking and screaming for as right. long as possible, um, and we get to a point where the transition from Swift five point x to uh, Swift six is a very seamless one, so um, yeah. I think I think we're gonna get probably Swift five point seven at DubDub this year, um, which who knows what that's gonna include. Uh, but I think it's going to be a while before we see um, a proper Swift six, um, just because of all the changes and breaking changes that it is eventually going to introduce. Um, again, to better the language, so. Um, I'm hoping all the generic stuff makes it in before then. Uh, but Swift 5 has definitely been one of the longer-lived releases of Swift. I remember Swift 1, 2, and 3 came by really quickly. Uh-huh. Um, and then Swift 4 was like where stuff started to stabilize, and Swift 5 was, this is the modern, like, this is the language that you can really go ahead and trust uh, and build some amazing things with. Um, and then every point release since has just improved it. Um, so really looking forward to what's to come. Uh, I think it's, once again, an exciting time to be a tech nerd. Agreed. It is. I think we all remember the, I think we all remember the um, Swift 2 to 3 transition that I think broke everyone's projects. That was, that was a rough transition for sure. So having them take their time is a good thing, I think, for sure. <laughs> I mean, as, as you're mentioning, Spencer, the the community being a part of it is becoming more and more a thing. I think Apple gets a lot of flack for, like, this is their thing, therefore they're just going to do whatever they want with it. And a lot of people have left in anger because of that. Um, But at the same time, they are conceding more and more parts of Swift to the open source community and to work groups, uh, so that way others can be involved in uh, the improvement of and the stewardship of the language. So, for instance, the Swift.org website... Uh, was just recently uh, opened up to a potential work group to take care of. Um, So that way anyone could go ahead and write blog posts. Anyone could further uh, Swift as a a group. Um, And uh, that's when we learned that it was actually written in Ruby. So, Fernando, your time has come uh, to 
uh, change that over to uh, Swift because it seems like the work group's first uh, item on their agenda is likely going to be let's make this run in Swift so that way no doubt. Uh, we have something something <laughs> that's a, a full circle. Uh, so they're going to need some uh, Ruby expertise. So, Fernando, your time has come. I'll write that down. Okay, this week's episode of Code Completion is once again brought to you by Bon Voyage. Bon Voyage is a full-stack iOS application development course from John B. With this course, you'll learn how to build a full iOS client app and associated React web administration application. The app and the site will integrate via Firebase uh, and uh, as well as Stripe and Plaid for payment processing. Bon Voyage is a place to book extravagant vacations and you'll gain the skills to build the iOS app from the ground up and integrate everything you need to provide a world-class vacation booking experience. To find out more and sign up for the course, visit bonvoyage.app slash course. That's B-O-N-V-O-Y-A-G-E dot A-P-P slash C-O-U-R-S-E. And be sure to follow Bon Voyage's instructor at Johnny B Codes, that's J-O-N-N-Y-B-C-O-D-E-S on Twitter, to stay up to date with all his courses. Thanks again to Bon Voyage e-commerce app course for sponsoring Code Completion. And uh, as always, I want to personally thank everyone for listening in this week. Please be sure to follow us at, on Twitter at Code Completion to know when new episodes get released. And feel free to tweet at us if there's ever a topic you'd like for us to dig into. Most importantly, as a small podcast, please be sure to share this with your friends and family who are also interested in any part of the process of app development. It's your support that enables us to continue doing this, and we hope to grow a healthy community around everything we discuss. Once again, I want to give my thanks to Spencer, who is at Spencer C. Curtis, that's S-P-E-N-C-E-R-C-C-U-R-T-I-S on Twitter, Fernando, who is at From Junior to Senior, that's F-R-O-M-J-R-T-O-S-R on Twitter, for joining me this week. My name, once again, is Dimitri. You can find me at Dimitri Buniel, that's D-I-M-I-T-R-I-B-O-U-N-I-O-L, and we'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye. Oh, I am so happy to get rid of (laughs) Daylight Savings. Or I, I guess we keep it we keep, we keep daylight it saving. but forever um but we get rid of the non-daylight we get uh, rid of the so time changing but did you, um, did you read that that it already happened in 1974 <clears throat> and it oh, lasted they, they tried yeah no. i saw that it lasted i think it can last a lot longer year. this time i hope so but um last time it happened there were like a lot of accidents um uh, relating to children going to school at night because they go at like six or seven in the morning and it's all dark and so there were several like road accidents like all over the place. So they ended up like canceling after one year. Hmm. I'm hopeful, but I feel Yeah. I feel like we we live in a world where there's like a country like Japan where kindergarten students like go on the train by themselves to yeah. school. Like if that exists, we can do better. Um they don't have daylight savings time. Like that's not a thing over there. Uh, and uh, they have a much like, I guess they have the same kind of swath of longitudinal, longitudinal uh, scales where like up north you just have very short days. Uh, so, yeah, I, I I'm not convinced that will like hold us back. I saw a lot of people saying like conspiratorially, oh, they're trying to like mess with uh, the lighting infrastructure or whatever and they're gonna get paybacks <laughs> i think i think all the senators just uh are lazy and they hate the time change every time and they just that was that was the it came in front of them and like get rid of this right now yes please i yeah. think that was all that was necessary i don't think they're like back of the 
back of the door deals to kind of get this going. Um, the simplistic nature of humans hating that we have to wake up an hour earlier or an hour later and that messing everything up that that I think is the driving force behind it this time. Yeah. And I I hope that children can like survive on their ways to and from <laughs> school. Or they just shift the times of school. Like right. the, the anyway, winter. It's yeah. Early. It's like Yeah. Uh, I saw someone mention that like it's going to be impractical for religious reasons because um oh. I, again i know absolutely nothing about this but there are some uh people that uh need to pray at sunrise um and then therefore they can go to work mm. um and they were they were upset by uh this potential change because that would mean that they couldn't go to like work at the right time um again like you can shift schedules around stuff uh ever more so in this uh fancy newfangled world while where a lot more people are remote um and cultures change over time like we didn't have daylight savings forever like people adapted before and people can adapt afterwards i feel like uh but that it may very much be my simplistic like world view um i am happy about it sorry people who are not happy about it uh, all the people are saying, oh, we're going to get less hours of daylight. That's not how this works. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the movement of the of the earth is going to change just yeah. because of this. And, and the, people, the people who said that, like, I know, I happen to know they are, like, independent. Like, they can wake up at a different time. Like, I don't get it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 